You are listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast, a podcast about ideas and events from the margins of terrorism, genocide, and the philosophy of violence. This podcast is recorded at the CJSW 90.9 FM studios at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, located on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is comprised of the Siksika, Pikane, and Gainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Good Stony First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Your hosts are Gavin Cameron, Josh Goldstein, and Maureen Hebert. We're all on faculty here in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary. Just a caution before we get started, this podcast is for a mature audience and deals with topics, commentary, and depiction of events that some listeners may find difficult or distressing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Oddities of Violence podcast. I'm the host for this episode, Josh Goldstein. I'm joined by my co-host, Gavin Cameron. Hi, Josh. And Maureen Hebert. Hi, everyone. Great to be in the studio with you again, Gavin and Maureen. In this episode, we're again probing the margins of the philosophy of violence. We'll be having a conversation about how and why we make claims that new types of violence and violent movements or groups have broken into our contemporary world. Joining us today to talk about the uses and abuses of the idea of the new is one of our Oddities of Violence workshop contributors, Marta Bashovsky. We're talking with Marta from Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. Hello, Marta. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here with us, and so nice to talk with you again. Marta is a political philosopher and assistant professor at Campion College and in the Department of Politics and International Relations, both at the University of Regina. Her graduate education, though, happened almost 2,000 kilometers west of there at the University of Victoria on Vancouver Island, where she holds a PhD in both political science and the cultural, social, and political thought program. Marta engages in really diverse and exciting work, ranging from the use of visual art as a form of critical and creative political thinking, to research on contemporary protest movements like Occupy Wall Street, and to the very idea of novelty itself as a philosophic and political concept that can be used in a variety of ways. In our Oddities of Violence project, we're asking Marta to bring many of these elements together, And in just a moment, we'll turn to how the new and the old are used politically and philosophically to make sense of violence. But let's begin with a question that we ask all of our guests. Tell us a bit about your origin story, Marta. How did you come to be a political philosopher and then come to be one who's interested in these three areas that now occupy your time, art and protest and the concept of the the new? And... Just to tack on an additional question, has your move to the prairies changed the research that you're doing? And Maureen and I grew up on the prairies in Winnipeg, Manitoba, so you're among friends here. Well, thanks, Josh. Uh, There's a bit of a long story or a longer story here that starts during my undergraduate degree, so I'll try to condense it a bit. But as a as a younger student, I was especially interested in in studying art and literature. I was kind of a book nerd as a kid. But um, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I, I for some reason or another decided that political science was a much more practical thing ah. to do. And of course, the joke was on this younger version of me because as I went through this political science degree, I became obsessed with you know, the least practical portion of political <laughs> science, political theory. Um, and I got really obsessed with the kinds of flexibility that thinking with political theory opened up for me. Yeah. And this happened for me really through the development of a really nice community. I was very lucky at UBC where I did my undergrad that I had this amazing cohort Uh, with whom I was able to develop ideas, have conversations about these big philosophical questions that happened both in the seminars, but also long after the the end of our seminars in in the campus bar. At the same time, though, throughout this kind of development of 
my interest in political theory, I was also kind of keeping up the interest in the arts more broadly. I was still mm. taking classes in art history and literature. I ended up doing a minor in literature as an undergraduate student. So at this time, things were kind of separate. Um, when I was doing my master's degree in political theory at the University of Victoria, I encountered the work of a, a political theorist named Michael Shapiro, uh, who's just retired at the University of Hawaii. Um, and it was with his work that I really started seeing how I might actually think about political theory as engaged with artistic practices. Mm. Um, and, and it helped me think about whether I wanted to pursue political theory really in the long term as a career. Okay. Um, so for those who haven't come across uh, uh, Shapiro's work is really eclectic. It kind of combines conventional and sort of canonical, you know, big name political theory with looking at all sorts of artistic objects, paintings, novels, films, music, um, looking at all these different kinds of art as being political theory, as offering theoretical ideas in different forms. Um, so seeing what kinds of things were possible to do as a political theorist really helped me think about, well, how can I do this myself? How can I combine these two interests uh, and, and ways of looking at the world into, into one sort of project? And this, this is actually what drove me to do a PhD at UVic. I ended oh. up doing a semester abroad in Hawaii. Um, and this is kind of how this broader orientation developed um, in terms of the relationship between art and political theory for me. Um, as for the interests in protests and novelty, um, those actually arose together as I was working on my um, PhD dissertation promote proposal. Mm. Um, the interest in thinking through protests and especially how we understand protests came out of my own engagement with the Occupy Wall Street movement while it was happening. I was a PhD student at the time and I was looking at all of the media coverage around Occupy Wall Street that it seemed to me really struggled to classify or explain what sort of event was happening. Right. Um, so there was a lot of discussion in the media um, uh, at the time about what it was that participants wanted, what their demands were, all of these kinds of how do we understand this sorts of questions. And, and all of these questions kind of struck me as curious because for me, what was so important and generative about the events of Occupy Wall Street seemed to me to be happening on the ground in the process. Mm. Um, they weren't really clear yet. And so this is where the idea of novelty comes in. Um, it seemed at the time like Occupy Wall Street was in the process of articulating something potentially new in the structure of social movements, what social movements aims were, um, how they worked. But the way the movement was framed in the media interjected in that possibility of novelty being developed. Mm. And so this got me thinking about how we frame events that seem to be new. What concepts and categories do we use to think about things that might not necessarily make sense to us and to our existing ways of knowing? And so once I started thinking in this way, it became more apparent to me that it's important to look at the idea of the new itself as a big problem. And, and one that really uh, um, has been a longstanding preoccupation for many people over centuries. Um, because, of course, I have to say that as a political theorist. Yeah, exactly. um, so now for the prairies, I've been here for almost four years, but... As a West Coast person, I still often feel like a bit of an alien here. Um, so I'm not totally sure that the move has necessarily changed my research too much yet. But something that has, I think, influenced me in a lot of ways as someone who's interested in thinking about social movements and progressive politics is learning with my students who I think off, kind of start off, at least some of them, with a, a better understanding of kind of the history of radical organizing, yep. political movements on the prairies. Um, so it's been great for me to work with a little bit of uh, 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 a little bit of that with my students. Um, and then also thinking about the massive shifts that have taken place because, you know, the, the Saskatchewan of the 19, 
40s and 50s is not the Saskatchewan of the 21st century. Yeah. Um, so that's been something that I think I've learned a lot about in the last four years. Wow, that's no, that's that's a that's a great account, and I think there are many political philosophers. If there are political philosophers who are listening to the to the podcast, will will be thinking along with you that their experiences are also your experiences, or or vice vice versa. That the way that political philosophy we think of it is so distant from the world, but actually gives us this really amazing grip on our everyday actions and relations and 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 events and connects you to the world in in these really interesting ways. So that was yeah, that was a a, a really nice story to really nice story to to hear. Thank you very much. And now to mm. to set the background for our listeners, your work that we're going to chat about today focuses on the idea that how we classify or think about violence might be even more important than the violent acts or movements themselves. So as you said, the the framing matters, and it matters a lot, and maybe even more than the what we take to be the facts in the in the world. And I think this is a really, really exciting idea. And and if I have it right, you want to draw our attention to two uses of the idea of the new and the old. That on the one hand, sometimes new violence is politically or philosophically packaged as old, same as it ever was. And secondly, or on the other hand, sometimes old violence is politically or philosophically packaged as new, same as it never was, we we might say. And I'm going to leave the discussion of the political uses and maybe abuses of the idea of the new, the novel, to to Gavin and Maureen, our terrorism and genocide experts, respectively. And I want to begin with a, a broad question for, for you. you. You say that there are historically inherited categories, practices of, of knowledge through which we understand the world and particularly understand resistance and dissent and violence and the groups that that carry them carry them out and that's a that's a big idea it's a hard idea to to get your mind around so can you tell us a little bit about what what this idea means and what what are these historically inherited categories and and is there a story about how we came to hold the categories that we that we do that we use now yeah of course um it is a very complex idea and i get at it both philosophically but also through empirical examples Mm. and so what i'll to answer your question what i'll try to do is i'll i'll give an example from my work in social movements which i think kind of helps to frame so to speak what i'm talking about here um so in terms of of social movements research and even just thinking very broadly about how in everyday life we try to understand social movements the categories historically have been relatively simple Mm. and often oriented around a movement's aims or goals so is it reform or is it revolution um it's a kind of very simple simplified way to to think about this um in other words is this movement seeking kind of small transformation of the system or reform or a big transformation or overhaul of the system or, or revolution and of course you know there's a huge caveat here that things get much more complex than this there's a range of massive debates but as a general framework for thinking about how categories frame our understanding of an event and its future this is helpful Um, So I'll kind of explain using this example of Occupy Wall Street. Um, In the case of Occupy Wall Street, what happens when, for instance, the media lands on the explanation um, that this is a movement that's looking for regulation of the financial system? Mm. Because Occupy Wall Street takes place shortly after the 2008 financial crisis. Well, this framing of the movement then makes it a reformist movement. It's no longer about all these other things that are being talked about, like wealth inequality. It's no longer about considering new forms of political relationships that are emerging through the physical space of occupation. Um, 
So that's one part. But even if we think about the revolutionary category, it doesn't really fit here either, right? Mm. Were the participants in Occupy Wall Street actually seeking a revolution in the historical sense of the term? It's not super clear that they were. So the categories don't really fit the times, or, or in other words, we're in some ways lacking appropriate categories to describe new kinds of events and practices. And when we use the old categories, these can limit the events. They frame them in particular ways. So another kind of example from Occupy Wall Street, in those early moments of the movement, many of the participants were very deliberate, very deliberate about refusing any particular ideological affiliation. Uh, okay. um, but later on, as there's this sort of interplay between media coverage, what's going on on the ground, between different movements in, in different cities and different occupations, there emerged a group called Occupy Democrats um, who are responding to this set of connections that were being made between financial system reform and, uh, um, uh, and the movement. Um, so something potentially new then politically gets brought into existing uh. forms of political practice. Um, now I know that, you know, there's obviously this kind of stuff happens all the time. Co-optation is, is very common political practice when it comes to, to dissent of various kinds. But what I think is helpful here is to think about how these historically inherited sets of categories um, really facilitate this, right? They facilitate this co-optation. Um, we have sets of conceptual boundaries about what the new can possibly be. So mm. in the case of Occupy Wall Street, is it a movement that seeks reform of the system or is it one that seeks the overhaul of the system? And this framework of reform or revolution, as I said, is 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 historically inherited. Um, this isn't obviously how we have always thought about these things. And this particular framework comes out of a specific historical moment, um, the European Enlightenment, the Age of Revolutions, and then the debates around revolution that happened in, in the century after that, in the 19th century. So that's one part of it. But we can also see how historically inherited sets of categories work in lots of other contexts. Um, so in terms of how we try to understand emergent or new forms of violence. So we look to our existing sets of categories, but sometimes that event exceeds those categories. Mm. So we have to come up with new ones or try to fit the practice or event into the old categories. So for instance, considering the debates around terrorism in the late 1990s and especially post 9-11, framing the event as new makes possible all kinds of new or intensified responses and ways of thinking about the present moment. Whereas considering that events connections to existing sorts of practices or a variation or continuity does something different. Maybe it requires a slower response or a more measured one. But in both cases, as, as you said, Josh, right, how you classify the event, how you frame the event really matters. I think that's really excellent. The So so our two categories for making sense of the new you you had said are this idea of reform and revolution and and as you were and as you were talking i was thinking about a kind of third category that we hear in the news all the time that that is a kind of popular category a category of evolution so you often mm. hear oh this policy is an evolution or uh, this law is an evolution in our current practice. And um, is, is that category of, of evolution, does that have a, a, a place, to, a place to, uh, to, to play? That's an interesting question. I mean, part of, I think, the struggle with thinking about classification, at least for me, is getting too caught up in the categories yourself, right? Uh, you, right you always yeah. want to match, back, match yeah, yeah. back into, well, is this reform or is this revolution? Is this something else? And I think, I mean, I think it's worthwhile that there is to think about, well, there's other ways beyond this framing to right. think about, um, to think about change, um, because ultimately this is what this is about, right? Is how do things change? How do things transform? Um, and some people who are interested in, in, 
the particular framework of reform and revolution that I kind of played around with um, might say, well, evolution is is a variation on reform, right? right? right it's not right. an overhaul. It's a small change. Others might say, well, actually, it's probably somewhere in between, right? It's a middle ground because it's not revolution. It's not an overhaul, but it's certainly you can't you can't say in some ways that this is the same system again, right? This is something new. Um, yeah, no, I think I think you're exactly right. And, and 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 what's really interesting, and this takes me to the second kind of question, is that when you say these words, reform and revolution, they immediately invoke in people a kind of a value. What we political theorists, you know, might call a, a normative value. It means something positive or 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 negative, and it has a real grip on our imagination to to say revolution versus reform. And and why do you think that that is that that these that these ideas of the new and ideas of the old, and we haven't talked about what what the kind of corresponding categories might be and on the side of the on the side of the old so you could you could bring that bring that up but but why do you think these these categories do invoke in in us a kind of response of good or bad a kind of fear or a sort of acceptance oh this will be okay oh i love this question in part because it really gets to exactly kind of how i think about this stuff and the sort of historical trajectory or, or genealogy that I've kind of come up with um, to think about this. And part of the reason why I love this question also is because it, it really troubles me because I have one answer. I'm not totally sure that it's a satisfying answer. It's certainly not a complete answer. But I think part of the answer about why ideas about novelty, especially, or the concept of the new or, or kind of transformation have such a grip on our imaginations lies in the ideas that came out of the the European Enlightenment mm -hmm. that I was just talking about so not only questions of you know the age of revolution but also the the age of enlightenment in Europe was these decades of massive scientific change, philosophical change, yeah. change in terms of understanding of the world beyond Europe, right? This is a massive time of global exploration. Um, and so one of the particularly interesting things that came out of that time is a sort of reflexivity where people in that moment in time, in that era, really wanted to understand themselves to be living in a time of profound novelty, profound mm. transformation, where things were changing all around them. And they were very invested in describing this change, right? There's all of this writing that we have still from people who were trying to describe what is this moment that we live in now? Right. Um, in a much in a similar way that we still do. Um, but people prior to that didn't do in the same way. Mm. Um, so this is an interesting kind of, place um so people were invested in kind of describing understanding change often they were celebrating it in some cases um but not in all cases there was a lot also of kind of tension and uh, rejecting change fighting against it um but in both of these sorts of responses what we had was an investment as you say and 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 really a preoccupation with thinking about what it means to live in a present moment um what kind of present is it and then considering whether the present moment is a time of change or transformation and what change so you know what's new in other words and so part of the reason for this and this is where i'm getting to your question about kind of why novelty is so normatively loaded for us um, is that within much of our thinking on novelty, there is implicit this idea of progress, improvement, transformation that comes out of enlightenment thought. So we are, to this day, many of us at least, obsessed with innovation, with progress, with growth. But again, this wasn't always so, mm -hmm. right? This obsession is actually historically relatively new in the scope of human history, even the recorded history of the West. It's it's modern, right? It comes out really from modernity, this, this period 
beginning from the Renaissance, but really these ideas are taking shape in, in the ways that are recognizable to us in the Enlightenment. Um, and so I think it's it's fair to say that it's it's not only that we're taken up with ideas of novelty, but really it's this kind of specifically modern understanding of novelty that comes out of the Enlightenment that's really gripped us because it is loaded with specific kinds of hopes and desires for transformation and progress that come out of labeling something new. And it's because of that, that it can seem that at times ideas about novelty can sometimes stand in for other more explicitly normative frameworks like good and bad or just and unjust. Because when it's bound up with ideas of progress, novelty is often perceived of as good. Right. No, and I think I think that's oh I'm I'm sorry, Mart, I didn't want to No, no, go for it. (laughs) So I it's it's really interesting that that when we think about the the normative or the the value ladenness of of ideas of novelty that that there seems to be a difference between an embracing of scientific progress we're always happy to get the newest iphone to have the latest internet speed the newest automobile and and so on and and yet social change is treated uh, differently, that mm-hmm. progress on a technological side versus progress in social policies, the institutions in which we live in, seems to be treated with a, a, a different sort of normative status. Is that, and that's just a sort of per- perception. Does does that how what what is your what is your own view of this sort of maybe divergence between the social and the scientific? It's a good question, and I think it, again um, we can think about the moment of enlightenment as and the debates that were happening at that time as sort of mirroring what's happening right now about this. Right there was, I mean, I'm not a historian of science, but. While there were some debates around technological innovation, you know, there's always sort of technophobes of various kinds in every era. Um, The debates that I think were most sort of fraught were these social and political change debates. Right. right? So we have the understanding of novelty and progress that's associated, you know, with the age of revolutions, with the overturning of various kinds of of inherited political authority, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But then you also kind of have different kinds of reactionary movements um, or or pushing back against exactly that idea of novelty. So there's a fear of novelty that's associated with that kind of novelty that's read as profound transformation. And we see that again today, right? There is very much a similar sort of rise of reactionary movements in this very moment, but it's also not very new, so to speak. There's always this tension between novelty, redis progress that's good, versus novelty, or kind of this fraught understanding of novelty that's reacted to as possibly scary, possibly unnecessary, maybe immoral in certain contexts. <laughs> right. And that's a that's a perfect transition for, for us to turn the conversation over to our co-host uh, Gavin to to talk about the specifically political uses, the place that the new that reactions against political authority and so on have within the the study of terrorism and terrorism uh, movements. Gavin, why don't you lead us off? Okay, thanks, Josh. I mean, I think that's a really interesting point to pick up, Marta, because certainly in the context of political violence, uh, you can have political violence that is both revolutionary and reactionary. Mm-hmm. So those are those are not actually um, opposites. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in that, certainly in the context of political violence, you could see. Uh, groups that are looking to sort of push back against modernity and and, and sort of social progress, mm-hmm. but in but are also attacking 
the established government because they're deemed to be excessively protective of of this sort of social progress. Mm. Um, so, so there's a lot of very interesting stuff going on here in the context of, of political violence. Um, you, you talked a few minutes ago about um, the new terrorism debate, and you sort of talked about sort of what was happening in the late 90s and sort of the sort of 9-11 and, and its aftermath. Mm -hmm. um, when, when we talk about newness and we talk about... Um, the new terrorism debate in that period. You see a number of sort of incidents, particularly sort of from a US perspective, from about the mid 90s onwards. And, and that's sort of driving this idea that there's some fairly fundamental shift in the logic of, of, of terrorism going on. And I can sort of see how you could argue that that's that there's a sort of political agenda playing out there and that certainly people have made that argument uh, about a, a counter-terrorism industry. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, th there's a, a relatively uh, rational risk assessment occurring that is then validated by what happens in the 21st century, or at least some of what happens in the 21st century. So, so where, does, where does novelty as a political project end and risk assessment as a uh, function of um, government, of responsible government, where does that begin? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I'm not totally sure that we need to think about these things separately. Mm, right. Um, and maybe I'm just one of these people that's always thinking about what the political project is of any particular um, political action, right? Because risk assessment is always going to be political, right? People are going to have different ideas about what constitutes a risk and why. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a very long sort of history of scholarship about this too, um, depending on their understanding of the situation. So I think there's there's a way that we can think about how is it that an analysis of novelty that goes a bit further back and thinks about um, the, not only the sorts of politics that are informing particular political decision-making, but also the long history of how we think about particular problems or particular mm -hmm. threats mm -hmm. um, that inform risk analysis, right? So how, how, uh, how can we look at how ways of understanding terrorism, for instance, influence the rational risk analysis at play in responding to risks and, and acts of terrorism? Um, does that make sense as a response? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm kind of doing this off the cuff because this is a little bit different than what I was thinking about earlier. No, absolutely. Um, so obviously, I'm sort of picking up on that point. To label something as terrorism is to apply a, a, a pejorative judgment mm -hmm. on it. Um, and, and one of the things that we struggle with very much as we think when we think about terrorism and study it is that the, the labeling or not labeling of it as terrorism or perhaps not terrorism is not so much a judgment in many cases about the intrinsic character of the violence, it's a judgment about the moral worth of the violence. Mm. Um, so if we think about the, the sort of moral character associated with, with terrorism as a term, 
and then we add in novelty. What do you think that novelty or newness is doing to add to the equation? What what what's the what what's the heavy lifting that that novelty provides here? Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and I think it gets us back to this idea that when we label something new, especially in this kind of highly politicized context of something like terrorism that has this sort of moral valence to it, that brings up all sorts of immediate kind of feelings, right? Like terrorism is a very visceral form of violence. Um, And part of that, I think, in thinking about novelty um, is, is, in the requirement to respond, right? It immediately changes right. the way that you respond. Yeah. Right. Um, because if it's something that we're already used to, well, we have a script, we have a way of doing this. But, you know, there's a question about, well, this is, is this is something that we are afraid of, perhaps, right? We are disgusted by, perhaps. Um, this is something that we need to understand and better in order to respond better this is something we need to contain or or, or some other kind of response um and i think also this uh, the kind of moral valence of, of of terrorism and thinking about a new form of terrorism which usually means a worse form of terrorism i think when we think about yeah. terrorism um lends a sort of exceptionality to it or exceptionalism rather right so this is not only new but it's exceptional and so we saw this happening all the time during the various kinds of things that were going on very quickly during the global war on terror right all sorts of things were were kind of considered to be new uh both in terms of activities of terrorist groups and the responses of of states um and because of this kind of exceptional nature this opened up a significant terrain for broader kinds of all sorts of new responses um so this kind of gets me back to this idea of, of political function right there's a certain kind of political function that claims to novelty quite often allow in terms of response. Sure. Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, but I, I mean, obviously, there are some cases of perpetual revolution. But in most mm-hmm. cases, novelty ends as, mm-hmm. as a sort of terminology as a term. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you might have had new terrorism at one point, at a certain point, it just becomes terrorism again. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about how novelty ends and the mm-hmm. implications of that in terms of the sort of political implications of novelty that you've described? Yeah, I mean, I think that's important to to consider, right? Because things aren't perpetually new, even though we, in certain cases, there is a kind of re-innovation of a lot of old terms which i think i think we'll talk about um and i think part of this has to has to do with as you said you know the new terrorism is no longer new at some point it becomes terror terrorism right it served in part i still i still kind of think this is true um, uh is that in part it served a specific kind of political function um and then eventually that became normalized Mm. um and so once we consider this we can think about you know why was this concept so successful politically what changed you know how did it become normalized um so that's one way a second way that we can think about how novelty fizzles out and perhaps more interesting way to do this is when we think about when things or ideas actually do change the frames of our understanding, right? How does our way of understanding something shift in a significant manner because of specific kinds of events? And one way that I think is currently very much still 
and process that we don't have an answer to, but to which I hope changing the frames of our understanding will be an answer is in some of the contemporary debates about mass shootings in the United States, Mm, perhaps. So are these a new form of violence? There's kind of one part of the argument is that they are. Um, And if they are, they require a very different kind of response to what we're currently seeing. But there's still a lot of work to be done in kind of framing them as such as in, in kind of convincing people that this is this is the case, that there is a different kind of response required. Um, but that's a very much still an open question. Um, another example of the second mode that I was thinking about, um, about how novelty is incorporated and kind of broadens accepted public understandings is in terms of how old ideas forms of violence that have existed for a very, very, very long time um, become reframed as new ideas and kind of shifts shift into public understanding. Mm. So uh, an example of this is hate crimes in, in legal discourse, right? Hate crimes have existed forever, perhaps, <laughs> um, but hate crimes as a, as a concept, as a legal concept, is relatively new, but is pretty widely accept, publicly accepted, of course, not entirely, but pretty widely. Um, so it's no, it's no longer a new phenomenon, but it's one that is kind of applied to serve a, polit- a specific political function that's been relatively effective legally. Um, the third way that I think novelty fizzles out, and, and that's perhaps most troubling to me, is when potentially new things are misapprehended as old. Mm-hmm. Um, so this might be another way that some people are thinking about mass shootings in the United States. So rather than considering the event as something, a new kind of phenomenon that's happening again and again that we need to grapple with and, and respond accordingly, there's a move to respond in kind of particularly routine, scripted ways. Um, and this has the the political function really of of depoliticization. Mm. Um, so we can think about this in statements that that we often see about that condemn calls for gun control, for instance, in in the wake of mass shooting. So don't talk about possible political responses now. Don't make this political. This is a time uh, uh, for grief. Um, so this is obviously a political political claim that's trying to kind of frame in a way that normalizes an effect that's that uh, an, an event that's maybe new. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion thus far, and I, I think your argument really nicely captures the politics of identifying empirical phenomena as novel or not, as the case may be, and how politically fraught this conceptual and, and political practice can be. Now, one thing I think uh, kind of adds to this complexity is when political actors effectively use what they say are new labels for new forms of violence, but in reality, they're actually deploying existing labels for old forms of violence. So uh, an example that we talked about sort of in correspondence uh, before we started uh, taping is targeted killing, right? So this term started to be used during the global war on terror as it came to be known in the mid-2000s as what appeared to be a new label for what users would presumably have previously called assassination. But in international law, uh, specifically the laws of armed conflict, targeted killing has been around for quite a long time, Mm -hmm. going back to the Lieber Code of of 1863. Uh, And it defines Mm -hmm. an act that contrary to what people seem to think is is lawful precisely because it isn't the same as assassination which is unlawful so just by way of background assassination is an unlawful act because it's the targeting for political purposes in peace or war of an individual engaged in political activity who's usually a civilian but targeted killing by definition is the use of force by individuals who have the legal capacity to use force in war under the laws of armed conflict, not in peace, against someone who is themselves a lawful target because of their status on the battlefield. So they're either a, a combatant or they're a fighter with what's called continuous combat function, or they're an individual who's normally a civilian, but sometimes they directly participate in hostilities. And when they do that, 
they lose their immunity. So all of this has left me a bit perplexed about what's really going on here. Do you think that those who deploy what they say are new terms, but are really old terms like targeted killing are simply uninformed? Or do some take what in this case is maybe a slightly obscure legal term and deliberately represent it or maybe mispresent it as something new, perhaps manipulating for political reasons the original meaning of the concept in the process? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some sense in which, you know, it's maybe not necessarily being uninformed, but there is this kind of desire to label something new, right? To have your finger on the pulse, you know, sometimes that means kind of jumping to conclusions and calling something new because you want to, you know, discover new things. You want to understand this present moment. Um, And that might be the case in terms of describing uh, um, events in the global war on terror, the kind of consistent practice of, of, of using the term tar- targeted killing for drone strikes, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, which is one, one place where that, that term was applied right. quite frequently. Um, but there's also been, I think, um, a not insignificant amount of, of scholarship that argues something a little bit different. I think something closer to the second framework that you were you were talking about Maureen right where the language of targeted killing is being mobilized for a very specific political function which is precisely to differentiate it from an illegal act Mm -hmm. to make an act that might be a little bit right on the margin exactly stating that difference exactly yeah in this moment where you know things are changing we don't exactly know what the rules of war are in this very distinct context. Uh, you know, there's high heightened emotions after 9-11, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's not necessarily, I think, about a lack of kind of legal knowledge, uh, but a specific use of that concept to think about how might this mean justified? How might this be legitimated? And so really separating this concept of, of targeted killing from its related terms, assassination, extrajudicial execution, Mm -hmm. helps, right? It helps to say, well, this is a different thing, right? Because targeted killing both has this this history in international law, but it also kind of, in terms of a public sense, um, kind of sounds sanitized, right? It's not assassination. It's not execution. Mm -hmm. Um, And people don't, aren't as familiar with that framework, right? It comes from this kind of obscure mid 19th century international statute. (laughs) Exactly. And you know, the law is always a great legitimator. If you can say something Mm -hmm. that is in the law, it's codified in law, there's been a court case that defines it in some way, then you legitimized it as right, you know? Mm -hmm. So I I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wonder also if you could say a bit about actors' perceptions of political violence and how they judge whether or not they are facing a novel situation of violence as it unfolds. So not retrospectively as scholars, but but when people are involved, particularly as victims of violence in an outbreak, how they come to understand what is happening to them. So I've always been fascinated by, as a genocide studies scholar, the process by which survivors will describe retrospectively how they understood what was happening to them. So they will often begin by saying that at the start of what is this process of destruction, they recollect that what they thought originally was happening to them was just a reprise of or perhaps an intensification of previous predations by the perpetrator. Often this is a state, but sometimes it can be some other kind of authority. But then in their stories, there always comes a moment when they realize that the perpetrators aren't just repressing them, it's not a limited pogrom, but the perpetrators are in fact in the process of trying to eliminate the group as a group. So how do victims, do you think, make sense of what is happening to them in the moment? And does it matter whether at the time they figure out correctly or not, whether their suffering is something new or old? So did it make any difference, for example, that in early 1942, in the Warsaw Ghetto, 
the people who make up what's called the Oinig Shabbats. This is kind of like a historical society who were gathering an archive of everyday information and writing up little bulletins, which they thought they were going to use after the war to write the history of what they thought was this pogrom against Polish Jewry. But then when there are escapees from the trains that have made it back from almost going to Treblinka, they come back to the ghetto and they say, you know, what they're doing is exterminating all of us. Then the point of the archive is to have an historical record that they can leave behind when they are certain that none of them will survive. So at that moment, genocide, as you talked about kind of earlier, is a term that's not yet with us, uh, or at least not known at that time to the members of the ghetto. But they know that this is qualitatively something new that's happening to them, not historically to others, mm -hmm. but to them. Yeah, I mean, that's so fascinating and, and absolutely harrowing. I didn't know that particular story. And, um, you know, this is quite outside of my my research area. Um, so I'm not quite sure if I'm um, equipped to, to fully comment on that question. Sure. Um, but I think it does kind of provide a, a really apt example of the ways in which participants it's, it's really most important to take account of what people on the ground say is happening. Right. Um, and if I can kind of try to connect this a bit to where I have done a bit more research, this is something that I was really trying to differentiate between when I was doing work on protests and social movements of, of, of the past decade um, because the categories of understanding that people not experiencing the protests, so the media, scholars, um, try to explain the event often is, is quite different from what people experiencing that event understand it to, to be. Mm -hmm. And often, as, as you say, Maureen, we don't yet have a very good understanding of what's going on while it's happening. <laughs> um, and so kind of jumping the gun and trying to explain as happened a lot in terms of, of, of social movements um, created this gap between what was happening, how participants in the case of these social movements were experiencing them um, or understanding them and, and then how this was, was framed um, by journalists, scholars, other commentators. Um, and so ultimately, I think, in terms of what's going on on the ground among participants, um, it is really important to, to pay attention there, what's happening there, mm -hmm. than it is to pay attention to how it's being labeled as old or new outside. Exactly. And even within these kinds of events, different people are going to see it in different ways. Some people seem to kind of grasp what is perhaps truly happening, whether it's new or whether it's old. Other people maybe can't put all the pieces together or they're not in the position to put all the pieces together. You know, they're in some very kind of isolated circumstance. And other people, you know, especially if it's a really horrific form of violence, just it's just too big to contemplate. You know, it's just this is just so big. I can't I can't wrap my head around what's happening. And they, they just become almost kind of paralyzed by trying to make sense of, of what's going on. I, I think maybe my last question for you uh, deals more with how scholars think about uh, particular mm -hmm. forms of violence and, and particular kinds of, of debates amongst them. And, and this really deals with the issue of denial. So the idea of you know genocide denial is a kind of a perennial question. Uh, Gregory Stanton uh, many decades ago, talked about it as the final stage of genocide. Other people now talk about it more as something that happens throughout the genocidal process, all the while that it's happening and, and then in its after aftermath. So I was wondering if maybe you could just kind of talk a little bit about the following kind of thing. So when, when political actors or scholars uh, contend that in excuse me, <clears throat> let me start again. When political actors or scholars contend that an instance of violence or abuse is not or should not be called, in this case, genocide. How, in your view, do we know when we are having, on the one hand, a you know reasonable debate about the boundaries and applications of the concept genocide or the legal crime genocide versus discourse that constitutes denial, genocide denial? Yeah, well, here I think, you know, 
law can be very helpful because mm -hmm. there is this extremely specific, rigorously outlined definition of, of genocide in international law. Um, of course, there are many debates, ongoing mm -hmm. debates about what does and doesn't fit into that framework. You know, cultural genocide is this kind of big question that's ongoing. Um, but in terms of, you know, there is a legal definition. Um, genocide denial, you know, seems fairly straightforwardly mm. a case where there is significant empirical evidence that fits that legal definition on the one hand. And secondly, consensus about mm. what that means, uh, uh, whether this is, uh, this constitutes genocide, you know, if mm. they don't, if someone is saying that that's not the case, well, maybe that's genocide denial. Um, I think other positions kind of where the reverse is happening, um, where there has been empirical evidence um, of genocide. Um, I think those, those positions are, are, are more kind of ethically important, politically significant, mm -hmm. um, because it is quite important, I think, to think about the ways in which, you know, even while the event is happening, as you, as you say, Maureen, um, that evidence has been suppressed, mm -hmm. contrary narratives are circulated that kind of seek to, to minimize those events. And it's interesting and, and important to think about what insisting on the application of the term genocide does here, yes. right? So in the context of indigenous genocide, for instance, what does that do to how we think about the history of colonization of the Americas? Why is that important? Um, and maybe I'll just end here very broadly is, you know, considering these questions of, of the political function of kind of each option of denying something is genocide when there's empirical evidence to the contrary versus kind of thinking about an event in the past that hasn't previously been described as genocide mm -hmm. um as genocide right? there's different kinds of political movements that are associated with each so thinking about those and 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 perhaps thinking about those early on in our debates um might might be helpful I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, this is a particularly fraught word. I mean, we call it, you know, the G word for a reason, because it, if you if you accuse a group of committing this crime or as a victim group, you say this has happened to us. It uh, mm -hmm. it has this particular weight. I always think it's somewhat curious that uh, we have this other term crimes against humanity, mm -hmm. which is pretty bad and was what constituted the the most serious crimes along with grave breaches at the at uh, or what would become grave breaches later on at the Nuremberg trials but but genocide now has this kind of you know ultimate crime sort of sort of label mm -hmm. and, and that's why it's so so hotly contested wow yeah it's been a been an amazing conversation but marta one one final question before we conclude briefly what is the one thing that you would want our listeners to ask themselves when they read about some violent act or violent movement in the newspaper, hear it on the radio, look are scrolling through their Twitter feed and so on, what is what is the one thing you'd want them to ask themselves? What a good question. Um, I think one question, or I'll, I'll I'll ask two. So, firstly, how does the framing of the story influence what I think about it. How does the particular language that's being used mm. to describe this action influence what I think about it? Um, and secondly, what political function or who does describing this act or movement in this way serve and why? Right. Those are and those are really uh, those are, are really important questions for for us to for us to ask ourselves. Ones that we I think lose sight of when we're just gripped by the account of this event that has happened. I think so. I think that's really excellent. And and thank you so much, Marta, for for joining us. It's been a really fantastic conversation that that we've had, and we we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with all of us. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Marta Bashovsky will be here at the University of Calgary on June 8th and 9th, 2023, for our Oddities of Violence workshop made possible through funding by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. You've been listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast. Our podcast is produced and edited by Alejandra Vivas with support by the great team at CJSW. Join us for our next episode when we return to our discussion of terrorism and the oddities of violence in the early modern world. Then we'll be looking at the odd case of the fear of organized arson and the London fire of 1666. Our guests then will be Johannes Dillinger from Oxford Brooks University in the UK, and your host will be Gavin Cameron. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.